You know, it's been several weeks uh, since we last looked at the second epistle to the Corinthians that was written by Paul. And in our last message from this letter, we focused in on what I call the culmination of God's promises. You see, the good news that is promised in the gospel is that God gives eternal life to every person who places his or her trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. We learned that this promise is not only a promise for eternity, that which will happen once we die, but it's also a promise of eternal life in the here and now. You see, God's purpose for our lives here on earth is to conform us into the image of his son. You've heard me say that many times. The Bible says that uh, we should be holy just as he is holy. Now, if you think about it, that's an impossible task if we attempt to do that in our own strength. But that was not God's plan when he told us to be holy as he is holy. You see, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence inside us and works to transform us from the inside out. The Apostle Peter wrote these words in 2 Peter 1. He said, His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You see, the divine power of God's Holy Spirit abiding in us as we are abiding in Him is enabling every believer to live a life of holiness. Now, this becomes very important as we consider what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10. Those verses say, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, to please God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad, or evil. Three weeks ago, the message concluded with an admonition to live our lives in such a way that our lives would be pleasing to God, pleasing to him, because there is coming a day when we will be judged by Jesus Christ for the manner in which we live our day-to-day -day lives here on this earth. Now this assessment, this judgment will not be about our worthiness to inherit eternal life. But rather it will be on the rewards each believer will receive for the deeds that he has done or she has done here on earth. As I said before, a believer's salvation and eternal destiny is not in question here at the judgment seat of Christ, but rather it is the work that they do. The reality of a judgment of the things that we do, the way that we live, the reality of that judgment should be a motivation for us. So at the beginning of today's text, which if you want to be looking at it, we're 
continuing in 2 Corinthians 5, we'll, we'll begin in verse 11. But at the beginning of the, the text this morning, Paul utilizes the word therefore as a transition to this next set of truths from God's word. Notice what verse 11 says. It says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Others. Why does Paul mention this concept here about fearing the Lord? What does that mean? Why does he say it here at this point in his letter to the church at Corinth? Well, I have a, a very large set of books about this wide or so. It's called the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. And if you want to just find out a concept about the Bible, usually you can look up, you know, a topic and it'll give you some good information. Well, the, the ISB or the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia describes the fear of the Lord in this way. It says it's synonymous with religion itself. And it goes on and it says, the fear of the Lord is manifested in keeping God's commandments, walking in his ways, doing his will, and avoiding Sin. I'm going to say those again. It is manifested in keeping God's commandments, walking in his way, doing his will, and avoiding sin. So Paul has just written to the church at Corinth about the judgment seat of Christ. And so it stands to reason that both the author, Paul, and the recipients, the church members at Corinth, would have this feeling of the fear of the Lord, this feeling of reverent regard for their God, tempered with this awe and fear of the punishment of disobedience. Paul is saying, because of the judgment seat of Christ that is coming, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others so as Paul begins this next section, persuading us to be responsible for the ministry of, of reconciliation, he does so by reminding us of what the fear of the Lord is. Now, we, we should not look at this responsibility to uh, in, you know, be entrusted with a ministry of reconciliation flippantly. This is not just a... A thing that we talk about folks this is the essence of why we're here on this earth we need to realize that this is of utmost importance we need to be serious about it and we need to be serious about living a life of obedience to God's command so that we can take this responsibility of carrying the ministry of re reconciliation to the world so it's in this framework that he sets out to motivate his readers to do this ministry. And so our goal today is to look at six factors that should be present in our lives when it comes to our motivation for the ministry of reconciliation. Now, before we consider these six factors, I want us to think for a minute about what Paul means when he refers to 
to the ministry of reconciliation. We'll see down in verse 18 as we get to it in our, our text today that Paul says um, that through Christ, sorry, that God through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So our purpose, Paul is saying, is to persuade people to be reconciled with God. You see, God created mankind to be in relationship with him. But because of man's decision to disobey God's command, that relationship was broken and could not be reconciled without paying the penalty of sin. The penalty, what is the penalty of sin? It's death. Sin required a blood sacrifice. And so... The penalty being death, Jesus paid that penalty on our behalf when he died on the cross. And so now God is asking us to carry the good news of that reconciliation to the world. In fact, it tells us here in this passage that we are his ambassadors. And we'll talk more about what that means in just a moment. And so as we carry this gospel of reconciliation to the world, we need to proclaim the message of forgiveness and the, the message of this new life in Christ that we have. And we must do so with a pure heart, with the love of Christ and with the authority of God as we carry this message. You know, I don't know if you have thought about this or not, but this past week, Brother David and I, well, we had a lot of extra time, and we didn't have any time this week, right, Brother David? Um, we, we traveled down to Conway this week for the BMA of Arkansas meeting, and so we had that time in the car to visit and talk. And um, One of the things that he and I talked about this week is just kind of our desire for, for ministry and our philosophy of ministry overall and he and he shared with me his heart for for having what what we refer to as an Ephesians 4 type ministry and if you're unfamiliar with that uh, you can look that up it's in Ephesians chapter 4 uh, verses starting in yes 11 where Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and he said and he gave some apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. You know, there has become this uh, idea in the American culture and the American church that the pastors do the work of the ministry. But folks, that's not the way the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are all ministers. We have all been entrusted with this ministry of reconciliation that we're going to talk about today. But I need you, before we begin talking about the motivation for ministry, I need you to understand that ministry is not a profession. Ministry is a lifestyle. Ministry is something that, that each and every one of us have a responsibility to do. As your pastor and as a, as a team of pastors, we have a responsibility to equip you to do the work of the ministry. 
not to do it for you, but to show you how to do it so that together we can work and complete this ministry that God has called us to. So this morning, I need you, if you don't already have this mindset, I need you to flip a switch in your brain and think of it this way. I am a minister of the gospel. I am. Say it. I am a minister of the gospel. It's your responsibility, it's my responsibility to do these things that God is calling us to do. So let's look at these six factors that ought to motivate us to do the ministry that he's called us to. This morning I want to, uh, because, well, as we, David and I, like I said, we had a lot of time to talk. As we were talking this week, I looked at him, I said, you know, the, the sermon I'm going to preach Sunday could easily be a month to a month and a half of sermons. He said, I know. Um, so there's a lot of stuff in here, y'all. This is a phenomenal passage of scripture. I'm going to do my best to make this quick. Um, but I, because there's so many nuggets, uh, I want to read each little nugget as we go through. And so we'll be reading bits of our passage as we go through the, the, the passage this morning. We'll begin in verse 11. I've already read part of it, but let's read it again. 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, reading through verse 13. The Bible says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart for if we are beside ourselves it is for God but if we are in our right mind it is for you so as we look at this and we try to see these six factors that should motivate us to be uh, doing the work of the ministry the first thing that we see is a pure or sincere heart in these verses, Paul de is defending himself. Why? Why is he defending himself here in these verses? Well, Paul met some opposition in his attempt to carry out the commission to persuade men to be reconciled to God. So he defended his conduct in order to win a hearing for his message. You see, folks, the fact is... A Christian's message is intimately bound up with his life and ministry. The two are hardly separable. You cannot proclaim a message with your mouth that you do not live with your life. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5, Paul reminds us that his gospel message came to them not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He gave his life to this message. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry out 
this gospel message. He was sincere, full of conviction. He went on to say, he said, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. There was no doubt about the sincerity, the authenticity in the heart of the Apostle Paul. Now this is not only the first point today, it may be the most important point for us today. Folks, the message of the gospel is not just words that we speak, it is the life that we live. And if we're not living an authentic Christian life, living in the fear of the Lord, then we are not only dishonoring the gospel message, but we are discrediting the gospel message. We are his messengers. We carry his message, his word. But it's our lives that people are looking at. Move forward. Verse 14. The Bible goes on and says in 14 and 15, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for, the sake, for their sake died and was raised. Brother David read some of this earlier. Um, this, this passage is a, is a powerful passage. You see, Jesus Christ demonstrated his love for us when he died for us. John 15, 3 tells us that uh, Jesus said in that passage that there is no greater love than when a man lays down his life for his friends. Romans chapter 5, Paul told us that God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ laid down his life and died for us. That same love that's talked about here should be in control of our lives. The love of Christ controls us. You'll notice what your bulletin cover says. Maybe you did. I don't know. Maybe you didn't. It says that the love of Christ urges us on. Folks, we're not going to be concerned about carrying the message of reconciliation to God to a lost and dying world if we do not love the lost and dying world. So yes, we must be motivated with a pure heart, but we must be motivated by the love of Christ. When our lives are controlled by the love of Christ, when it is his love that compels us to carry out this great commission that he has given us, our lives are noticeably different. We earn the right to speak into people's lives when we demonstrate God's love for them. 
My mentor, Brother Alan Rogers, one of my mentors, said so many times to me, Wade, they don't care what you know unless they know that you care. It is the love of Christ being manifested to all those around us that gives us the right. It earns the opportunity to speak into people's lives. Just a few minutes ago, we uh, sang the song, Build My Life. And in the chorus of that song, it says, Holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder. You know, if we would truly get a grasp of what God has done for us and the way that he loved us, we would be awestruck which is part of that concept of fearing the Lord. Open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me or control me with your heart. And then I love this part. And lead me in your love to those around me. God did not come to save you so that you could be awestruck with his love. He came to save you so that he could lead you in his love to others so that they can have that same reconciliation as well. Well, the third factor that should be present in our lives when it comes to our motivation for this ministry of reconciliation is the new life that we have in him let's keep reading in verse 16 it says from now on therefore we regard no one according to the flesh even though we once regarded christ according to the flesh we regard him thus no longer therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The third motivation to be responsible for this ministry of reconciliation is this new life. Because of the reconciliation we've experienced with God through Christ, we are no longer who we once were. Amen? I am so thankful that I am no longer who I once was. You know, actually, Thursday afternoon uh, at the BMA of Arkansas meeting, they have breakout sessions where we can go and we can experience uh, the expertise of different individuals and learn things that we can bring back for for ministry and uh, I had uh, another meeting and so I was a little bit late getting to the uh, breakout sessions and I was like oh I don't want to I don't want to go in on somebody uh, who's already started and then I I thought about it, I was like oh I could go in on him he wouldn't care um, so I went to Dan Carson's breakout session <laughs> Dan didn't mind and as we were sitting there, it was a small group in there, and um, uh, <laughs> there, were, there were two guys in the room that I didn't know. 
And so um, I just started introducing uh, myself to them. And Dan said, well, you might as well introduce everybody, Wade. So I did. I started going around the room. I said, this is this guy, and this is where he is. And, and um, <laughs> anyway, uh, if you know Dan and you know mine and Dan's relationship, uh, it, it goes way back. Uh, we tell people that we... Uh, have known each other since junior high, and we've been friends since high school. Um, but um, I was a very different person in high school than I am today. Um, <laughs> thank you, Rick. Rick rem remembers me in high school because I came and hung out with a youth group up here. Um, I'm a very different person than I was in high school. Uh, but when I'm around Dan, because we go so far back, sometimes that high school self emerges at times. And I was, I was in a bit of a rare form and just having a good time. And uh, I was talking to Dan's daughter later in the afternoon and I said, yeah, I kind of took over your dad's breakout session for the first five, 10 minutes this afternoon. She said, oh no, was your wage showing? And I looked at her, I said, Cat, it's worse than that. It was my high school Wade that was showing. And she said, oh, no. <laughs> Folks, we are not, let me rephrase. We should not be the same people we once were if we've experienced this reconciliation that is offered to us by God through Christ. We are different people than who we once were the old should have passed away and everything should have become new now before experiencing this transformation all of our thoughts all of our deeds all of our desires were focused on ourselves we are by nature, selfish creatures. That old flesh, that selfish nature has been replaced because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He has made it possible for us to be reconciled with God. But notice what it says here. It is up to us to choose which nature will have control over our lives. It says, we regard no one according to the flesh. We do not consider people according to the flesh any longer. Why? Because all the old has passed away. Everything has become new. But folks, we have that option of staying in the flesh. It's called our sin nature that is at war within us against our spiritual nature. Verse 14 told us that the love of Christ should control us. Paul said the love of Christ controls us. My question is to you, does the love of Christ control you? Too often the love of self ultimately is in control of our lives. This is why Paul says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We must consciously make the decision that we will live in the new life that we have been given 
by Christ. Romans chapter 6, Paul addresses this issue. We have a choice to make in regard to sin. We have a choice to make in regard to the grace that God offers to us through Jesus. And we have a choice to make about how sin and grace will have an effect in our daily lives. Notice what Paul says here. Verse 1, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Think about that. He promises us grace. He promises us forgiveness. So should we just keep on sinning just so we can experience more and more grace? Paul says, by no means. Or in the King James, they translate it just, God forbid. He goes on and says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Our lives should no longer be the same as they once were. He goes on in verse 6. He said, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And then verse 11, he says these words. And this is key, I believe. He said, so you must Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must consider yourself dead to sin. Folks, the fact is that we are no longer under the power of sin's control unless we give sin control over our lives. We have been forgiven of the penalty of sin, but it is a process to get out from the power of sin and it's a process that we can only accomplish through the power of the holy spirit working in us considering ourselves dead to sin when we consider ourselves dead to sin that is a choice that we must make and it's a choice that we must make not just day by day folks sometimes it's hour by hour and minute by minute We must choose, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ or in Jesus Christ. So the fourth factor that should be present in our lives when it comes to our motivation for this ministry of reconciliation is the desire to reach people with this amazing news of new life, free from the penalty and the power of sin and the weight of sin in our lives. Notice what it says as we continue on in our passage. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God, who through Christ 
reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. There are two key phrases in these two verses that we cannot miss. First is that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation at the end of verse 18. And then at the end of verse 19, it says, he is entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Folks, if the gospel, now what is the gospel? The gospel is good news, literally. If you, if you just translate the two Greek words that, that go together that we translate saying that's the gospel, it's the good news. If this good news of God's design to reconcile us to himself is not taken to the world by us, his church, the world will never hear that good news. The ministry of reconciliation has been given to us. The message of reconciliation has been entrusted to us. Have you all ever heard of the sin of the desert? I've talked about it before, but it's been a while. The sin of the desert, there, I don't know if it's a, a fable or, or just an old story or whatever, but I mean, it makes a whole lot of sense. Um, what's, what's the most precious commodity if you're wandering in the desert? Water. The sin of the desert is to know where a water source is and not tell others about it. Folks, that's what we're talking about here. We know where the source of life is. We know how to be reconciled with God. It's through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. His death, burial, and resurrection to new life gives us that new life. For us to not tell others, we're committing the sin of the desert. Several years ago, I showed you a video of Penn Gillette, which uh, if you know who he is, Penn Gillette is the magician. Uh, Penn and Teller, um, they're not good guys. Uh, Teller actually passed away uh, not too long ago, I think. And, uh, but Penn Gillette is a self-proclaimed atheist. But in a video one time, and you could tell it wasn't, it wasn't anything that was um, produced. It was him, tear-filled, sitting in probably his dressing room or something. I, I, I don't know. But in a video one time, this is what he said. And this is just a part of what he said. Because he had had an interaction with a guy on the streets of Las Vegas. And in response to that interaction, he said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Now, you may not be familiar with that term. But to proselytize is to try to tell someone what you believe so that they will 
believe that also. Okay? We call it witnessing, usually in a Baptist church, but proselytize is, a, is an accurate term for that. He said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. An atheist who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep, keep your religion to yourself. He went on and he said, how much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, he goes on. I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you, and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is way more important than that. How much do we have to hate someone to not share with them this message of reconciliation? Folks, it is on us to share this message. If we do not, if we do not, how can we claim that the love of God is in us? The beauty of this is that God did not give us this responsibility without also giving us the ability to do it. Let's look at this next verse, verse 20. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We implore you. What is an ambassador? An ambassador, by definition, is an official authorized representative of the one from whom he or she is sent. Or another way of putting it is they are an official envoy. We understand what an ambassador is when, when an ambassador goes from our country to live in another country. Their purpose in that country is to represent the president of the United States to that country. Folks, we are Christ's ambassadors. We speak not only on his behalf, but listen to this. We speak with his authority. Just as an ambassador speaks with the authority of the president of the United States, we speak with the authority of the creator of the world who loved us enough to die to pay the penalty for our sins and to purchase eternal life for us in heaven. We are his ambassadors. We have authority from God. So as Paul states here in this verse, we implore you 
on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. Going on in verse 21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Chapter 6, verse 1, Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The sixth factor that should be in our hearts and in our lives to motivate us toward the ministry of reconciliation is the forgiveness of sin. If you are here today and the, the thought of God's forgiveness of all the ways that we disappoint and disobey him does not break your heart, then, then maybe you need to, to spend a little more time thinking about what all that really meant. God wants a relationship with us. God wants us to be reconciled to him. He wanted that so badly that he was willing to give his one and only son to die on our behalf. To provide us with that mercy and grace, that forgiveness of sin. And folks, as chapter 6 verse 2 says, behold... Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you're sitting here in this room right now and you have never come to that place in your personal life where you know for certain that you placed your trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, now is the favorable time. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. God wants to have a relationship with you. He loves you. He sent me here to tell you that he loves you. Just as he's sending you to tell others that he loves them and wants a relationship with them. Folks, don't put it off. If you've never experienced the forgiveness of sins that God offers to us. I pray that today will be that day that you experience salvation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for thank you for your love. We did not deserve it. But Lord, you gave it. So thank you for your love. Thank you for the, the means to experience forgiveness of our sins. So, Father, now, just two things that I pray for this morning. I pray that you will burden our hearts to carry this message 
of reconciliation to people who do not know about it. And Lord, I pray secondly, that if there's anyone here who has not yet been reconciled with you, who has not yet trusted in your son as their savior, Father, I pray that you would burden their hearts, that they would come forward, that they would talk to me, and that they would be made right with you through the power of Jesus Christ and your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that today will be the day of salvation for them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.